the Gospel according to Mark, and chapter 16, verse 19. These are all scriptures to do with the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Mark 16, verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken unto them, was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word by the signs that followed. Amen. And then Luke 22, the 22nd chapter of Luke, and verse 69, Luke 22, verse 69, But from henceforth shall the Son of Man be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then Matthew 28, back to Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18 Matthew 28 verse 18 and Jesus came to them and spake unto them saying all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And then Ephesians Ephesians 1 And verse 20, we'll read from verse 19, I think. And what the exceeding greatness of his power to us, what who believe, according to that working of the strength of his might, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that filleth all in all. And lastly, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Who being the effulgence of his glory 
and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, in the studies that we took last autumn, you will remember we dealt with the actual, first of all, with the actual, um, the fact of the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're not going to go over that at all. And then secondly, we dealt with the results of his ascension and enthronement. The first was this, his work is completed, the Holy Spirit has been given, and all is ours in Christ by the Spirit to be received through faith. I say it again. The first result of the enthronement Ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus is that his work is seen to be completed. He has sat down at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit is poured out and all, everything, nothing is not included. Everything is there. All is ours in Christ by the Spirit of God, to be received through faith. Therefore, you and I have exactly as much as we have taken by faith. No more, no less. We cannot blame the Lord for defeated lives. We cannot blame the Lord for superficiality or spiritual impo impoverishment, or uh, much else. We have exactly what we have taken by faith. The grace of God has wrought for us a complete and full salvation. There is nothing that the grace of God withholds. Every single thing is given to us. Indeed, it is committed to us. And it is given to us not on the grounds of our own striving or of our own righteousness or of anything else that belongs to us by nature. It is given to us on the simple grounds of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension and enthronement is the seal of God upon that work, being absolutely completed and absolutely acceptable to heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ has sat down on the right hand of God as the guarantee that every single thing in heaven is ours. This is why in one letter 
um, the Apostle Paul is able to say, everything is ours, everything. And he goes through a whole list of uh, apostles and others, and, uh, and he mentions many others. He says, they're all yours, whether it's Paul or Kephas or Apollos or things present or things to come, or whatever it is, it's all ours. Everything is ours. Uh, there is nothing that is not given to us. And it is all given to us on the basis of grace. So there, there is not one single excuse that is valid for you and I not living a full Christian life. So let us be absolutely clear about this. There are no favorites with God. There are no apples of his eye. There are no specially sort of nurtured and watched over ones who are put on a pedestal above the rest. We've all got the same privileges. We are absolutely given the same rights. And it is simple faith that either believes or disbelieves. That's all. And if uh, faith believes, then you can take it, and you can take, and you can take as much as you want. As Mary Reese said very bluntly, but of course very truly, you can have as much as you want. Just take it, that's all, as much as you want. And you will discover, if you put my words to the test, that all the people you know who've got anything of Christ are people who have, by in simple faith, taken what they've got. It has always begun with the simple, uh, factual step of faith, which has brought them into a living contact with a risen Christ. Well, now, that's one point. We, we could stay again and, and spend the whole evening on that. But we have already um, talked about it at some length, although I'm quite sure that it wouldn't be unprofitable uh, to talk the whole evening upon this one point of what is ours in Christ, because it's as if, it's as if we've somehow or other got to have quite a lot of advertisement before we'll go to the larder and take what is ours. Many of us are sort of thin and emaciated, and yet there's a larder there which is stocked full of everything we could wish. And somehow or other, now and again, a bit of advertisement is needed uh, to sort of, you know, those pictures you see in glossy magazines of beautiful peas and chops <laughs> and so on. This is what you can have, if you wish, that's sort of designed to, to arouse an appetite and to make you feel like buying and eating. Well, I think sometimes a little bit of advertisement is, is needed, that we should know what is ours in Christ. We should, we should know that it's all there for us and it's not for special people or favoured saints. It is for every single person. And it is according uh, to your faith, be it unto you. Uh, so if you will only use the little bit of faith you've got and take, you'll, you'll get what you need and then a bit later on you'll have to come again and take some more. But it's all yours. Everything is ours. It's all given to us, whatever, whatever we might need spiritually. The second result of his ascension and enthronement is that he is, he is interceding unceasingly for us. This was the second point I believe we dealt with. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are told, is seated. But it also tells us in one or two places that he ever lives to make intercession for us. 
And there is no more wonderful fact for us if we know the tempter and if we know what it is to be in a battle or a conflict, if we know our own failings and weakness, to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father and interceding for us. Just in that way, of course, in a much more marvelous way, he once said to Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. So now in a much more wonderful, much more valuable way, the Lord could say of many of us, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. The Lord Jesus' prayer ministry is the most, is the most uh, important factor in any Christian life. And it's a forgotten factor. The Puritans used to make a lot of the intercess intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus, but you very rarely ever hear people um, speaking or thanking the Lord for his intercession. And yet, you know, when you and I get to heaven, it won't be our prayers that we shall see to be the vital factor in our lives, and it won't be our prayers even that we shall see to be the vital factor in the work of God. We shall see that it was the unceasing prayer ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand that was, was, was the abiding and vital factor, the vital factor in it all. If you and I come one day to be presented to God, it will be due not only to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, but to his never-ceasing ministry of intercession for us uh, before his Father's face. So there is another wonderful fact, uh, another wonderful result of his enthronement. The Lord Jesus is not doing nothing uh, this evening. He is, he is praying for his own and praying for the work of God and watching over um, all of us. As it says um, in uh, 1 John and chapter 2, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, an advocate. As one of our hymns put it, puts it, an advocate within, that is the Holy Spirit, and an advocate with God, that is Jesus Christ. The third great result of the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have a risen, victorious, and enthroned head to whom we are joined, who is beyond the power of the enemy to touch or defeat. That's a tremendous thing, and we've spoken also about that. We have a risen victorious and enthroned head to whom we are joined. It's not as if we are uh, detached from him. He is watching us from afar, uh, but we are indissolubly joined to him. He is our head. We are the body. He is our risen, victorious and enthroned head. The head of the body is seated. He's finished the work. And he's there as the guarantee of absolute and final victory. It's a most tremendous thing to see it in this way. 
This, is, this was the message of the early church. They had arisen Christ, uh, an enthroned Christ. Uh, their, their great proclamation was, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We are invincible. You may kill us. You may destroy our meeting places. You may try to shut our mouths. But we are invincible. There is nothing, in fact, you can do. Why are we invincible? Because we are only actually flesh and blood like you. We are only poor mortals, sinful men and women, those saved by grace. What makes us invincible? It is this simple fact. We are a body, an, an organic body, joined indissolubly to a risen, victorious, and enthroned head. He's far above all principality and power. Every knee must bow to him. And we're joined to him. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is. I once heard of a missionary uh, in India. Um, I don't think anyone here knows of her. She was a Scotswoman, like many of these pioneers, a very difficult uh, lady to uh, get on with. But uh, uh, a tremendous woman of prayer and faith. And uh, many of you know uh, Mr. Patterson uh, of Honor Oak, who was Mr. Sparks' colleague for many years. That brother once said after hearing that sister pray in the name of Jesus, I would give all that I have to see what that sister sees in the name of the Lord Jesus. That woman was amazingly used on the north northwest frontier of India. In the end, the, uh, the uh, commissioner, uh, the governor for the area, when it was British India, used to call Miss Gow. Whenever the, the, the tribes were fighting, whenever there were riots, whenever there was unrest, it wasn't the soldiers that quelled. It was little Miss Gow. She was only this high, but she walked out in the name of the Lord. And she used to stop them all. And not only did she stop them all, but many were saved. These were Muslims, uh, considered to be the most difficult of all. Because she saw something in the enthronement and ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus that most other believers failed to see. And she saw that she could use the name of Jesus, not of one who was merely crucified, but one who was arisen, victorious, and enthroned head. And his name had absolute authority. Now it was this same little lady who in Edinburgh at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland who heard uh, one or two uh, ministers debating about the devil. Uh, and Satan, on the platform, there's a big discussion actually in the General Synod uh, Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and uh, she became so enraged to hear the Satan spoken of as if he was all-powerful that suddenly this little woman got up and stormed out. And, of course, they thought that it was because she had disagreed with something. She hadn't disagreed with anything at all. Uh, the moderator went out to see her because she was a very renowned woman. Uh, they all knew much of her and begged her to come back. But she said she would on no account come back. It was our Lord Jesus, she said, who was enthroned, not the devil. And she wasn't going to sit there and listen to uh, talk about the devil being all-powerful when the Lord Jesus Christ was far above all. Now, this was the woman who wasn't just 
talking theory. She knew it. And could walk into situations and bring the name of Jesus not as a charm, not as some amulet, uh, not as something with magical power, but because it was the name of an absolutely victorious and enthroned Lord. And could bring that name into cases of sickness, and they were healed, into cases of devil possession, and the devils were cast out and into cases where there was rioting and unrest and brought peace immediately. Well, I only say that in passing. You see, we need to see that we are indissolubly joined to an absolutely victorious and enthroned head. Well, that's a tremendous thing. And he is beyond the power of the enemy to touch or defeat. Why does the enemy touch us? Not because we are of any value to the enemy, but because he can't touch the head, that's why. So the only way he can get at the head is touching us. So remember that next time. Uh, when, you're, uh, when you get a, uh, a battering from the enemy, just remember the head is beyond the power of the enemy to touch or defeat. So he does his best with you. And so long as you hold on to your invincible head, you are invincible. Whatever the devil does to you, even if in the end he took your life itself, you are still invincible. There is nothing the devil can do. This is why sometimes the Lord will let the devil go a long way, and why some Christians can't understand why he allows the devil to go so far. But you see, the point is this, that in the end, you and I are invincible. Because we are joined to a victorious head. I think it's a wonderful thing to remember that the, that the Lord Jesus is beyond the power of the enemy uh, to, to, to touch or defeat. Oh, the devil did his best to defeat the Lord Jesus down here, but he's lost the battle, and he's lost it for all the ages. It's a battle that's lost. The devil doesn't seem to think it's lost, but still, never mind about that, it's a lost battle. Absolutely lost battle. He's been fighting for 2,000 years since, but uh, it's still a lost battle. He did his best to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ, and he lost. And do you know how he lost? He lost when he seemed to be the most victorious. When he smote the Lord Jesus on the cross, it must have seemed to the devil that he had done his worst and and was within a yard, shall we say, within an inch of victory. But in fact, it was his defeat. When the Lord Jesus went into hell, the devil must have gnashed his teeth in despair because the Lord Jesus went into hell and preached the gospel there. What must the devil have thought when the Lord Jesus was in Hades preaching the gospel? He'd, he'd, he'd hounded the Lord all his life. He'd, he'd slain him on the cross by the hands of wicked and lawless men. And now the Lord Jesus was in Hades preaching, it says, to the spirits of those who, who died in the flood. Huh. The devil must have gnashed his teeth in despair. And when on the third day the Lord Jesus was uh, raised from the dead, it was the bell tolling for Satan.
It was, it was the, it was the end. It's been tolling ever since, thank God, too. Even if some Christians don't realise it, the bell's tolling, and and the devil's end is in sight. And every time he seems to win a victory of some kind or another, it's not really a victory, because the Lord Jesus is beyond the power of the enemy to defeat, and the Lord makes the blood of the martyrs the seed of the church. In no single part of this world where blood of faithful men and women has been shed has there not been a fruitful harvest. In the end, it always means a rich harvest for the Lord. So we have a head who is beyond the power of the enemy to defeat or to touch or defeat. So no, it's no small wonder that he's after us. We're still down here. We're still vulnerable. We, we can still be caught by the enemy. So he's after us all the time. And if only he can get us disbelieving and depressed and taking his side and murmuring about the way and groaning about the Lord and why doesn't he do something and all the rest of it, he must be just rubbing his hands with glee. But when he finds people who know that they are joined to an enthroned, a glorious and a victorious head, then he is up against something that he knows is his end. He can do no more uh, with such people. That's the stuff the martyrs were made of. Well, then the fourth, uh, the fourth thing, that the fourth result of the ascension and enthronement of the Lord is that the ultimate realization of God's purpose is absolutely sure. The ultimate realization of God's purpose is absolutely sure. I'm not going to spend too long on that because uh, we've often underlined this simple fact that the end is already decreed and it is uh, it is bound up with the finished work of Calvary because the Lord Jesus Christ has sat down at the right hand of God the Father the end uh, the realization of God's purpose is absolutely sure let the devil do what he wants to do let him go just as far as he wishes to go, God's purpose will be fulfilled, devil or no devil, hell or no hell. Whatever may stand against God, it is absolutely certain that God's purpose is going to be realized in full. So that is another point. Now there's another point. The last point, and the point that uh, we uh, slid over a little. The fifth result. There is nothing Christ cannot do. No advance he cannot make. No intention he cannot realize. No obstacle he cannot overcome. Christ is on the throne and cannot lose. Now, this is a tremendous fact. It's only drawing out from the others. It's, uh, it was really our concluding point. But in fact, it, it, it is, well, it's tremendous. Just think of it. Just think of it. 
There is absolutely nothing that the Lord Jesus cannot do. If he wants to, he can overthrow communism in China tomorrow evening. If he wants to end the Kremlin's rule of Soviet Russia, he can do it this weekend. There's nothing the Lord Jesus can't do. Absolutely nothing. If Brother Nee is destined in God's purpose to minister to us, he'll come out of prison and out of Red China and he'll come to us. Because there is nothing that the Lord Jesus cannot do. Why is there nothing he cannot do? Well, you see, he's on the throne. And he is on the throne far above all principality and power. There is no one above the Lord Jesus. He has sat down on the throne of all power. Now listen to what he said. All authority and power is given unto me. Then he said, Go ye therefore. And then he said, And lo, I am with you. This is the secret of, uh, of being uh, in, a, in a stream from the throne of God which cannot be overcome and cannot be defeated by the enemy. We must make sure that we are in that stream of life. That's all. Make sure that we are in the stream of life. Make sure that we're not compromising. Make sure that we're not getting involved in that which even though it may appear Christian may in fact be, belong to a Babylonian uh, uh, sphere. But if we keep ourselves in the stream of God's life there is nothing, nothing, nothing in heaven or on earth or in hell that can stop the Lord Jesus from getting exactly what he wants to get. Nothing. Now, to me, this is tremendous. Uh, there are a number of scriptures I suppose we could read together. There's Matthew 28 and verse 20, which I've quoted. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There's Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. That's tremendous. The devil hasn't got the keys of Hades. The Lord Jesus is the one with the keys of death and hell. Isn't that wonderful? Those keys that were in the devil's hand, he had the power of death, were taken out of his hand when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. And now those keys of death and hell are in the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. The usurper is overcome. No wonder he's mad. He's overcome. The keys are no longer his. It's the Lord Jesus who has the keys. I think that's tremendous. So there's no death locked situation no hellish situation that the Lord Jesus hasn't got the keys to he's got the keys not the devil and then Revelation 3 verse 7 and 8 
These thing, things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and none shall shut, and that shutteth, and none shall open. What a word that we all need. He that openeth, and no one shutteth, and shutteth, and no one openeth. I love that. Our Lord Jesus is absolutely, he is all-powerful. There is nothing he cannot do. If the Lord Jesus wants to open a door, he'll open a door. And if he wants to shut a door, he'll shut a door. And if you try to get through a door the Lord Jesus has shut, you'll wear your, yourself out, banging your head on a door that will remain shut. If the Lord Jesus has shut it, it's shut. If the Lord Jesus has opened it, nothing you will do or hell can do or anyone else can do will shut it. I know another sister um, who, when she was 18 years of age, was called. Now, I've heard many people have told me they're called. And I, I'm afraid to say that some calls I treat with great suspicion. But this sister, a Danish sister, was really called of God when she was 18 and she was called to Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is one of the closed lands of the world. And her whole life has been spent on the, what was then the Indian side, or the Pakistani side now, of the Afghan border. She is now over 60 years of age. And do you know where she is tonight? Tonight, she is in Kabul. And do you know what she's doing in Kabul? She's nursing in the royal family. Well, now, is God able? The gospel's not allowed to be preached in Afghanistan. When I met this sister, I must tell you, uh, I hope it never gets back to her ears, but I must tell you that she looked a little eccentric. I must say that. And she was uh, uh, not uh, uh, a very fashionable lady to look at in any way at all, not even uh, ordinary or normal. But I was caught by something of Christ in her. And when she spoke and she told me how she had been called when she was 18, how she spent her whole life on the border, and now when she should be retiring, as she beautifully put it, the mission wanted to retire. Uh, now she'd gone over onto the other side. And she was where, humanly speaking, it was impossible to be. You see, when God opens a door, no man can shut it. And when he shuts a door, no one can open it. Not even the devil can shut a door the Lord's open. And not even the devil can open a door the Lord has shut. You know, it was impossible to preach the gospel to the emperor. But the Lord opened the door. Of course, it was a very strange door. He made Paul a prisoner. Then he sent Paul to Rome. Then he lodged him in Caesar's house, in, in, in the prison. And uh, the imperial guard, who was, every, there was a change of guard each, each watch, uh, one after another, they got saved. And as members of the imperial guard got saved, so members of Caesar's household got saved. And you know, in the end, at Paul's uh, trials, emperor, the emperor himself, heard the gospel. And this is not fanciful on my part. For the Lord Jesus, you will remember, said to Paul, Fear not, Paul, 
For you must stand before Caesar and testify to all these things. You see, the Lord opened a door which no man could shut. And it may seem to us to be very strange, but it was true. Then again, Ephesians 3 and verse 24. Ephesians 3. No, it's Ephesians 3 verse 20, of course. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And then Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Well, I, we can't read all that, but you know the, that wonderful, um, great word of the Apostle Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? and so on. If we are holy on his side, we cannot lose. Oh, isn't that so? And yet, you know, it's the thing the Lord sometimes has to take a lifetime to teach us. If we are holy on his side, we cannot lose. If we want the Lord to be on our side, there may be areas of defeat, very great defeat. But if we move over to his side, and stand with him, we can't lose. We just cannot lose. Well, it doesn't matter what it is. Troubles and trials. Troubles and trials. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, to them, uh, even to them that are called according to his purpose. Ha! Troubles and trials. There is nothing that the Lord Jesus can't turn to good account. Nothing. Nothing. I've already mentioned Paul and uh, his, um, uh, his mishap. Uh, there are some, of course, who believe that Paul should never have gone to Jerusalem anyway. He was out of the will of the Lord. They point to the fact that both the churches warned him about going there and even a prophet came and bound his hands and said, imprisonment waits you in Jerusalem. But whether it was a mistake on Paul's part or not, whatever happens, all we do know is this, that the Lord turned it all to good account. And all the way through, we find people are being saved. What can you do with the man? Tell me what can you do when the devil does his worst, takes his freedom away, takes away even the possibility of his preaching in one sense to big crowds and uh, puts him in chains and beats him and uh, much else. Uh, what can you do with a man who the people to whom he's chained get saved regularly? The devil must have scratched his head trying to work out who he could put on the chain that wouldn't get saved. Really, you've got to think of putting really hardened cases uh, in touch with Paul. Because what can you do with a man like that? A man so invincible. A man that cannot be overcome in one's Why? Paul was just like you and me. He was, uh, he was as easily depressed, I should think, as you and I. As easily downcast. If we look at the catalogue of his troubles, my word, he had reason to be. 
But you see, he was joined to an invincible head. He knew that there was nothing the Lord Jesus couldn't do. And in that he rested. Like Brother Nee, when he sent out that letter to his sister uh, in Shanghai and said, I am at perfect peace in the will of God. Now, there is something for a man to, for that, that's something for a man to say when he's been ten years in solitary confinement and brainwashed for three or four years of that. I am at perfect peace in the will of God. Well, you see, I mean, when you find a man like that, the devil just doesn't know what to do with the man. You see, the troubles and trials that come to that man, they're turned to good account. The Lord turns them round and uses them. Let me give you two other illustrations. I think of Joseph. And I think of him when he went down into Egypt. Now, it may well be that Joseph was rather proud when he was a young man. He was made a lot of by his aged father. His father loved him and made a lot of him. And you know, he had that coat of many colours. He was a little bit of an exhibitionist. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he told them all about his dreams. And, uh, he, he, well, he was that type. And uh, <clears throat> he was only a young fellow. And I don't think in his wildest dreams he ever thought his brothers could be so evil as to sell their own flesh and blood. And then when he went down into Egypt, it seems as if somehow or other, well, he tried to get over it all. He tried probably to look on the brighter side. And in Potiphar's household, it seemed as if he was in a nice home. His master was very kind to him. And then Potiphar's wife. And then he was put in prison. And the psalmist says that the iron entered into his soul when he was in prison. The word of the Lord tried him. My word. Could a man have so much of trouble and trial and difficulty? And yet, do you know the Lord was actually turning it all to good account so that that same man by virtue of the very way that he'd gone of trouble and difficulty became the supreme power in Egypt <clears throat> and not only the means of Egypt's survival but the means of the very brothers who, who had sought to destroy him, of their survival. Could there be anything more wonderful? You see, the devil must have thought, I've got him, I've got him. But the Lord turned it all to good account. And though he was many years in prison, my word, it prepared him for the throne. And I'll give you another um, illustration of trouble and trial being turned to good account. <clears throat> uh, from the same story. Think of Jacob. Poor old Jacob. You know, when the Lord dealt with Jacob at Jabbok, he was a different man. All the old twisting, scheming Jacob was broken. And instead, for the first time, there was something of the beauty of God's life and character that came through Jake. He was Israel. But he made an awful lot of his youngest, his two youngest sons. 
And you know what happened? He was heartbroken when uh, Joseph was reported as killed. And he believed the fact that he was killed. It was a terrible calamity. It was a catastrophe as far, far as, uh, jo as Jacob was con concerned. It was the most terrible thing that had happened in his life. Then came a famine. Now, what would you have said if a famine came? Oh, quite some years after. If a famine came, wouldn't you have said, no, you know, Grandad, Grandad had this trouble. He, he uh, I remember him telling us all about it. Um, famine came and he went down to Egypt and got into an awful lot of trouble. Surely we should stick it out up here. You know, Jacob did stick it out. But he sent his sons down into Egypt to buy grain. And you see, the Lord was turning a trial that must have seemed to him. Poor Jacob must have thought, has the Lord deserted me? All these troubles in my life, and now this. But in fact, the Lord was using that very difficulty to bring back to Jacob the son he thought was dead. And the only way he could do it was through a trial and a difficulty. Now, isn't that a wonderful, a wonderful illustration of the way the Lord can turn trials and difficulties and troubles to good account? All things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. Yes, and then, of course, there is the devil's work. <clears throat> Well, we know about that, don't we? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. 1 Peter 3 verse 22. It says, Who is on the right hand of God and gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning... Oh, just wait, I'm sorry, I'm quoting you the wrong scriptures there. 1 Peter 3, 22, that's right. And 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 9. You know the, um, that reference to this messenger of Satan who was sent to Paul to uh, trouble him. Uh, here is the devil's work. And not just the devil's work in an indirect way, but the devil's work in a quite definite and direct way. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 33, the Lord Jesus said to um, uh, Peter, Satan hath obtained thee by asking. Could there be anything more terrible, more direct interference of the devil in, in a child of God's life? than that. But you see, the Lord can turn even the devil's work into good account. So it works out his purpose. Uh, you think of Job. Well, I don't have to tell you about Job. You all know the story of Job. You know that the devil was behind that in a direct way. And, uh, you know, it seemed for a long time as if the devil had everything his own way. He was allowed to do everything he wanted to do with Job. But in the end, it, it worked out to God's glory 
and purpose. And Job came out with something that he would never have had if the devil had never tampered with him. Um, you know, um, I think I said this before, the devil is God's most extensively used instrument for blessing. In the end, the devil is the most extensively used instrument of God for blessing. It doesn't matter what the devil does. God turns it to good account. It doesn't matter what he does. Now let me give you again two illustrations from the Old Testament. Do you remember David's terrible sin with Bathsheba? There was the devil. The devil was in that. And you know, it must have seemed in the end to David as if he was in the hands of the devil. It must have seen the end for, of everything, of all spiritual life, of usefulness of any kind. But you know, when that was confessed, and when the Lord cleansed, it was Bathsheba who became the mother of <coughs> Solomon. The one who was to build the house of God. There could be no clearer illustration of the way that the Lord can turn even the devil's work to good account. i tell you another uh, little uh, um, point or two. Do you remember the time when David was persuaded by the evil one to number the children of Israel and he started to count them in direct contradiction uh, to what the Lord had said in the law? He started to count them. And do you remember what happened after a while? A great plague spread, spread through all the children of God. And it seemed as if, if it went on, that none would be left. They were dying everywhere, on every side. And nothing that they, would, that they could do seemed to, to stop the uh, plague. And finally, David confessed his sin. And do you remember? It was, he was near the threshing floor of a man called Ornan, who was a Jebusite. And uh, he went to this man and asked if he could purchase the uh, threshing floor. And the man said, yes. So he purchased it. And there, on that threshing floor, he offered up a sacrifice. Now, it was on that very place that David just before saw the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. I think you all know that the passion of David's life was to build the house of God. Who would have thought that through the devil's working and through David's failure he would have come to find the site, the building site for the temple. But that threshing floor was, was the, the actual site for the temple to be built. Isn't that amazing? It's just, in the end, it, makes, it staggers you because you, you think, well, it almost seems as if the Lord had foreordained uh, David's uh, sin. But he hadn't. Sin ha doesn't find its source in the law. But you see, the Lord can turn the devil's work and, and failure and even <coughs> sin in his own people when it's confessed 
put right to such good account that it becomes, in fact, uh, the working out of God's purpose. And then again, we can look at it in this way, that death, whatever way we are called upon to die, um, death itself uh, is no obstacle to the Lord. And I must say that I find it sometimes a little bit um, bewildering uh, that Christians who sing uh, hymns about longing uh, to get into the presence of the Lord and into heaven, whenever it, there is the slightest possibility that they might be going over, uh, become increasingly concerned about being delivered from heaven. It's an amazing thing. Uh, uh, and yet, you know, it, Paul said that he longed to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's a, isn't that interesting? He says he's, he's going to stay. He told them, I'll stay a little longer because it's needful for you. But I'd much rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. You know, that's a way of looking at death. And I'm afraid that it doesn't seem to be a very, um, a very general way of looking at it amongst us Christians today. Uh, and yet, you know, what is death? Of course, it'd be a wonderful thing if the Lord comes and we don't have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. But, you know, death, whether it's a normal death or an abnormal death, a martyr's death, whatever, whatever it is, death actually is has no hold over the Christian. Uh, it's the last enemy that will be abolished. But you know, as I was saying a little while ago to someone um, uh, who lost uh, a dearly beloved one, and he was rather young to go, and all the glory had gone out of it. For, you see, they had expected him to be healed. And uh, he wasn't healed. And for a while it seemed as if the glory had gone altogether and people, they were talking in terms of defeat. Defeat. And uh, I said to them, you know, I don't think it's defeat. Do you know the devil's done? The devil has used the last weapon in his armory. Death! And it's as if uh, the Lord has said, all right, use it. Use it. Take his life. But that's not defeat. You wait. The devil will be there one day when every single jot and tittle of that body will be redeemed. Not one hair will be left. Every single part of it will be raised from the dead. It'll come out again. It's so but. It's so, but there's something going to come out of it again. That's, that's not defeat, is it? <laughs> that's not defeat. That's a way to look at it anyway. I, I, I don't think that we have to be frightened about death. It'd be a wonderful thing if the Lord comes and we can go into the presence of the Lord directly, as our, one of our hymns says, without sickness or sorrow or dying. What a wonderful thing it'll be. But you know, I just sometimes wonder whether uh, those who've gone by the valley of the shadow of death will not be more precious to the Lord. 
than those of us who are saved out of it, from it. It says in the Psalms, precious in the Lord's sight is the death of his saints. I think there's something incredibly precious about the passing on of one of God's children. Because you see, this is the last great enemy of man. And it is the thing that holds mankind in bondage. They are fearful of death. But you see, for the Christian, although the Lord stands back and says, All right then, use your last weapon, death, yet the Lord, for the Lord it is absolute victory. There is not a single Christian who is not going to be raised. They're going to have new bodies. All, all is going to come back. Every single bit. It'll be changed. It'll be a glorified body. It won't be like this old corruptible body. But nevertheless, not one single bit of that person physically will be left behind. They'll be raised incorruptible. And to therefore for, to be forever uh, with the Lord. Well, I think that's a tremendous thing. To me, it's an absolutely thrilling thing. So then why bother about death? Uh, I mean, whatever happens, I, I, I know, of course, that uh, when it comes nearer to death, as Amy Carmichael said, it seems that in every person's life, when they come to it, there's a little shadow just before the end. But then nevertheless, let's remember this. Death is still death, but it's lost its sting. It's lost its sting. And for the Christian, there is no sting in death and no victory for the grave. Huh. We are the victorious ones, not, not the grave. We are the victorious ones, not death. We've got an enthroned, risen, glorified Lord. And uh, one day, when he comes down from heaven, then up <coughs> from the graves they'll all uh, arise. And uh, loved ones, they'll have new bodies. All of them will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And we'll all be together forever. Well, I think that's a wonderful thing. There's nothing he cannot do. Nothing he cannot do. No obstacle he cannot overcome. No advance he cannot make. No intention he cannot realize. And then, and lastly, you think of the future. Think of things on a much bigger scale. We've talked about troubles and trials, your personal troubles and trials, my personal troubles and trials. We've talked about the devil's working uh, and activity. We've talked about death. I mean, all of us will have to die unless the Lord comes back. Uh, we'll all have to go that way. But that's, that's not defeat. That's victory. Absolute victory. Uh, but you know, there is another sphere, a much bigger sphere. What about the sphere of international things? When you look around you, you look around, for example, we, we see these great systems. We've seen them in this century. Fascism, communism, and many other things. And perhaps yet, 
for all we know, a worst yet to come. These things looming, as it were, like great phantoms, uh, are, are on the horizon. What can you say about that? Sometimes these things seem to be so vile, so terrible, so all-powerful, that it, it, it would seem as if they've got the upper hand and they can control the very breath, we, uh, our very breathing, the very air we breathe. When you read in Revelation about them being registered with that mark of the beast in their forehead, and you read that they're not allowed to sell, to buy or sell, that's a tremendous. It means that unless you're registered with this anti-Christian thing, you can't buy food. You can't buy clothing. And you know this is exactly what has happened in China. So that when we had that letter from the elders of the church in Hong Kong, they told us about the wives and children of deacons and elders all over the mainland of China. And they said their husbands have been put in prison and many of them have been killed. And now the wives cannot buy or sell. They are doomed to starvation. Unless, in some miraculous way, the Lord keeps them alive or they recant and become, and become progressive elements in the new Marxist society. You see, it's not just so fanciful as some people think. Hitler got near to it in his rule and in the last great system of antichrist that's going to come, of which these others are but pale shadows and predictions. We shall see it in a more terrible form than ever before. Now then, now then, is the Lord on the throne? When loved ones are killed? When the very right to live a normal life is taken away? When you cannot preach the gospel? When you can no longer meet together for fellowship? But when your very premises are taken away, you know, in Shanghai, in Howden Road, when they built that great place, it was opened in 1949. And they had the great opening Thanksgiving service as the communists entered in the outskirts of Shanghai. I often wonder whether that would happen with upstairs. But I pray the Lord will deliver us from it. But they had men, waited many years for the final completion of their premises. And do you know what the communists did? They took the premises away within a year and made them the center for indoctrin indoctrination in communism. The students. And you see, you and I, we look at it in a detached way. For those of you who've read that little book, Come Wind, Come Weather, you know a little bit more about what I'm talking about. But you see, we look at it in a detached way. For us, it may not seem so terrible, but just you imagine it. Just imagine it. And then it becomes apparent whether in your heart you have seen and know 
that our Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne and that we are joined to him indissolubly and that there is no advance he cannot make, no intention he cannot realize, no obstacle he cannot overcome, then it becomes clear as to whether it's in the head or in the heart. You see, you see, there's so much that we could say, so much more about the great godless systems that have terrorized the world in past history and that are yet to be. We know whether we have at the most optimistic <coughs> view, I don't know whether it is optimistic actually, uh, whether we have a century or two to go. So just supposing we had a century or two to go. In the end, there will come a system more terrible than anything in the whole history of mankind. Now, that's not just being taking a pessimistic or fearful view. It is the view of Scripture. The final great conflict between good and evil will see evil seemingly all-powerful. In fact, at the end, if we are to believe the Bible, then it will seem as if at the end, just like, the, like Calvary, it will seem as if the devil is within an inch of victory. So much so that the Lord Jesus said, Shall I find faith when I come? He speaks of it being, if it's possible, that the very elect shall be deceived. He speaks of a great falling away coming first, seducing spirits, and much else. It will seem in that day as if the devil is within an inch of victory when the Lord will come. And dramatically, and immediately, the whole situation will change. It won't matter very much whether we're dead or alive then, because we shall all uh, be raised to be with the Lord and we shall be forever with him I could go on and I could go on but I mustn't but I could talk about a counterfeit church huh, there is a counterfeit church and you can see it now I remember when we used to talk about a counterfeit church when it was treated with a little bit of suspicion by some now the thing is so underway that nothing on earth can stop it Nothing. The Presbyterians are talking about union with Congregationalists. Methodists are talking about reunion with the Anglicans. And the Anglicans are talking in terms of reunion with Rome. Lutherans are talking about hopes of reunion. The whole of Christendom is seething with talk of reunion. Counterfeit church. And what will you and I appear? We shall appear narrow bigoted, uncharitable, loveless cranks. The whole world thinks well of what is happening in Christendom. And you just dare to criticize it. You just dare to say that you think it's evil. And immediately everyone's against you. I'm not just talking about uh, nominal Christians. I'm talking about the men and women in the street. 
You see, the thing has gone so far now that nothing can stop it. It's a counterfeit church, but don't get discouraged. The thing's foretold. We are told in the Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that this great harlot who rides on the beast, the beast is the great political system, this harlot that rides on the beast is a counterfeit church. The bride in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, she is, uh, she is made out of pearl and precious stone and pure gold. She's a bride. She's a virgin. Married to the Lamb. This other is a harlot, a common prostitute. And she is gilded with pearl and precious stone and gold. She's gilded with it. She looks as if she's the real thing. I, I've no doubt if you were naive enough, uh, you might be taken in and think that she was the wife of the lamb. But she's a heart. She's something in which every unclean spirit lives. Now, this may seem a sort of rather uh, forceful talk, but this counterfeit church will, in the end, make a complete covenant, a pact with the political system, and will become a tyrant, as far as we true believers are concerned. I am amazed at the number of true Christians who are being swept into this thing. Absolutely amazed. It is, it is amazing when household words, I'm almost tempted to mention some of them, names that you and I respect, such as the chairman of Keswick, for just for one example, is now wholeheartedly in support of the ecumenical movement. It is amazing. And it can only be explained in terms that if it's possible, the elect themselves shall be deceived. My word! But you see, don't you feel powerless? I do. If it wasn't for the fact that I know the Lord's on the throne, and thank God I know my Bible just a little, I feel so powerless. It's as if one's standing in front of an Amazon-like river that's flowing, and you can't do anything about it. I've got a little bucket and some sand, and I'm trying to dam up the thing. Shout as loud as I can. Stop! Say, one feels overwhelmed by the thing. It's it, it started, and it's too late now to do anything about it. Comforting thing is that it's in God's work. But you see what I mean when one day this thing gets the supreme power and, as in China, the political system says, we don't prosecute churches or ministers or missionaries. Um, our, um, our religious committee does it. Do you know who prosecuted all the missionaries and others in China? Not the Communist Party. Uh, the prosecutors were the uh, three self-governing uh, movement, the three self 
things. Self, I can't remember what they were. Self-government, self-support, uh, self-something else. But the, this was the thing that which all the denominational bodies were registered and had to belong if they wanted to keep their premises open. And they were the ones that were encouraged to tell on others who weren't towing the party line. So Wang Mingdao was put in prison, not by the communists, but by uh, the church. And so it'll be in the end with us. We shall be asked, well now then, come, come, you must be progressive. You must, we want to bring everything under this thing. I mean, what does it matter? Why don't you belong to us? I mean, we're, we're all after the same thing. I mean, we believe in the word and we believe in God. And uh, and we'll give you freedom just to believe, so long as you belong to us, you see? That's all. And uh, when we can't do it, it'll be the end. Well, uh, don't worry about it. You know what happened to the... You read in, in Revelation 17 and 18 that... That prostitute, that harlot, she rides on the beast and she seems as if she's got everything at her fingertips. She, it says she commits fornication with all the kings of the earth. What a picture of this kind of church, so-called. And then she goes up in smoke. Yes, in a minute, she's gone up in smoke. And my word, it's the biggest hallelujah chorus you've ever seen in Scripture. Yes, it is. It's the biggest hallelujah chorus except for Revelation chapter 5 and 6 in the whole Bible when all the angels shout hallelujah the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What are they shouting hallelujah over? Over Babylon and that, and that, that uh, adulteress that's gone up in smoke and it says that all the merchants of the earth, they stand back and they see that smoke rising up to heaven. And shall I tell you something else? Out of heaven comes the wife of the Lamb. <laughs> she was so despised by that other worldly female. She was sneered at as being naive and simple, pure, unwise, empty-headed. But she's the one that's gone up in smoke and the other one's the one that's going to reign forever and forever. So, you see, it's a wonderful thing to be married to the Lord. Well, I think we should use our terms to say engaged to the Lord. We're not married yet. We're engaged. But, you know, it's going to be a wonderful day when the Lord comes. Wonderful day when the Lord comes. And we're with him. So don't let it get you down. I could give you so many scriptures. I said we were going to look at them all, didn't I? But we haven't. But you'll have to read the whole book of Daniel. <laughs> and the whole book of Revelation. And quite a bit of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. You go home and read them. And quite a bit of, uh, uh, of 1 and 2 Timothy. And then when you read that, you'll see what I'm talking about. You look into the future and what do you see? Nothing but darkness and evil. Nothing but a great counterfeit church wedded to a huge antichrist political system. That will wield authority such as this world has never seen and whose hands will be stained with innocent blood, such as has never before happened. And you might be tempted then, and I shall be tempted, but I shall have to, my words will, be, will come back to me, no doubt, one day. 
But you know, uh, we shall be tempted then to wonder, is it true that he's on the throne? Is it really true that there is no advance he cannot make, no intention he cannot realize, no obstacle he cannot overcome? Is it really true? Thank God it is. If we're on his side, we cannot lose. We cannot lose. They can take our freedom. They can take our clothes. They can take our meeting place. They can take everything we've got from us. But we can't lose. It doesn't matter. You know, even the Lord Jesus was stripped naked in the end. And he was nailed to a cross. But you know, the devil found he was invincible. He couldn't win. And you know, in the end, whatever they do with us, the devil will find he can't win, even if he uses his last great weapon, death. And I have sometimes thought that that is the reason why the Lord allows some of his choicest servants to die the most terrible deaths. When I think of Bill McChesney, beaten to death. When I think of Muriel Harbour, so cruelly. These sweet, lovely people of God. One wonders why didn't the Lord let it be sudden and instantaneous. But you know, it was as if the Lord was standing back as he did with Stephen. And let those cruel stones one by one batter the life out of him. It was as if the Lord was saying, all right, Satan, do your work. Just see, just see whether you can conquer. Just see whether you can win. I'll tell you, when you've done your worst, when you've closed their meeting places, when you've taken away their freedom to preach, when you've stopped them living a normal life, when you've taken away their life, their physical life, and sometimes in the cruelest manner, you'll discover that they are invincible. Overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Shall we pray? <coughs> Dear Lord Jesus, we do thank thee that thou art indeed on the throne. And we do pray that thou wouldst encourage our hearts and help us, Lord, we pray, that we might be a people in touch with the throne. Oh, Lord, we need to see it. Our hearts need to be open to see that thou art on the throne, to see that thou art ascended, to see that because thou hast sat down at the right hand of God the Father, the Holy Spirit has been poured out and is ours. Oh, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see where thou art tonight and grant that because of what we see and of what we know we shall, we shall have a faith that functions and enters into all that thou hast won for us at Calvary and given to us through the Holy Spirit and grant, beloved Lord, that we shall prove to be through thy grace alone absolutely in Lord, teach us what it means. And lo, 
I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We ask it in thy name. Amen. Amen.